0: Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Alzheimer's Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org.
1: It's not often that an author leaves this world and the government declares a three day state of national mourning. Y en homenaje a la memoria de Gabriel Garcia Marquez. That's what happened in Colombia in 2014 for writer Gabriel García Márquez. The
0: man whose genius was to filter the often bloody and divisive history of Latin America and its post-colonial search for identity through a lyrical lens. The Colombian-born writer is best known for his novel 100 Years of Solitude. In 1982, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Experts christened his work Magic Realism. He always said he simply reflected daily
1: existence in in Latin America. I invent nothing, he said. People always praise my imagination, but I believe I'm a terrible realist. Everything I invent was already there in reality. Gabriel Garcia Marquez sketched the origin stories of a continent and won the affection of ordinary people and critics around the world. He was known simply as Gabo, He spent his earliest years in the remote Colombian town of Aracataca, which he later fictionalized as Macondo in 100 Years of Solitude. As an adult, he moved with his family, wife Mercedes and two sons, among Spanish-speaking countries and Latin American capitals, until finally making a home in Mexico City. Last year, his son Rodrigo Garcia published a memoir about caring for his parents in their final years. Rodrigo is a screenwriter and film director in Los Angeles, and his book, A Farewell to Gabo and Mercedes, lands like an arrow to the heart. I'm Kitty Isley, and on this episode of 24-7, you'll hear why. I spoke to Rodrigo Garcia earlier this year about caring for his parents in their last days and writing about it. Gabo and Mercedes died six years apart.
0: I took these notes and then I, you know, after my father died, I returned to Los Angeles and I wrote them all down quickly because I I didn't want to forget them. I didn't want to forget the feelings, the ideas behind them. You know, it was not something that I thought I would publish. I thought it would be for my kids or my brother's children. And, but it was when my mother died that I realized what I wanted to do, what I could do beyond just writing about the last few days of the famous writer. You know, her death pointed the way for me to write about the loss of both parents and and the kind of closing of a chapter that that is.
1: Can you paint a picture of your dad in the family, not as the famous writer that the world knows, but the dad that you knew?
0: I can give you a version of, you know, my dad when we were kids, when we were seven, eight, nine, you know, we always had a good sense of him and his relationship to us and to his work. First of all, because he worked at home, he never had an office, he always had a home office and his schedule when he was writing, which was wasn't every day, but most days when he was on a project, you know, was nine to two. It was very, very structured. Only late in a book when he was already in a rewriting and revising mode would he work in the afternoons. But as long as he was creating, as long as he was unfolding a book, it was always nine to two. You know, he had superb concentration and could go into that office and and it was a it was like a time warp. He was, you know, very capable of not hearing or, or seeing anything beyond what he what he had in front of him. But then he would switch and be very present at lunch in the afternoon. Mm-hmm you know, he was always very curious about our lives and would interrogate us and was very um, insistent, for example, that we came home from school to have lunch. School hours in Spain and in many, you know, Latin countries is usually 8 to one thirty or 8 to 2, unless there was a day where you stayed back to do extracurricular activities or sports. You know, we were required to come home You know, he really saw lunchtime as as a place to to catch up and to see what everyone was doing. You know, he had that lifelong question of his, how's life? What's going on? Tell me something. And then also very gregarious person. You know, he he was always very social and and, uh, constantly going out uh, uh, in the evenings, not every evening, but you know, it was having people over, always socializing. So that's the father I remember from my you know, early years. I think in my late teens, you know, my parents were still curious about us and would ask us, but you also climb up more as an adolescent, but he would still try to corner us and try to figure out how life was.
1: Do you recall your father, or do you recall becoming aware of his losing some of his mental sharpness?
0: Yeah, you know, there was always something that you know I've seen already, and I've been through, which is you know sometimes even in your fifties you'll forget a name. In your sixties, for example, this this week I was struggling to remember the name of the actress Juliette Binoche, whom I've known her work for thirty five years, and and I could not remember it for a full afternoon. And uh, of course, you know it immediately fills me up with paranoia. So he did go through periods like that, but I think it was the normal forgetfulness. Into his late 70s, it became more acute. That's when we had him tested because he started feeling like people didn't look that familiar or they looked familiar, but he couldn't put a name to them. And so he was tested several times. And the most likely possibility was that he had Alzheimer's so that they can never totally give you an Alzheimer's diagnosis uh, while you're living. Only an autopsy can provide that or that's at least what we were told 10, 15 years ago. But you know, things started to get worse, and and there was a, an ugly period where he was fully aware that you know memory was slipping from him, and it's a very anxiety ridden period, not just for the person, but also for people around. You know, the exhaustion of having to see a person repeat themselves over and over and over again, and even if you know what's happening, it can be very debilitating to spend time with a person that just is going around in circles but you know even in the midst of that fog he said something that i quote in the book that i thought was just you know remarkably well put or as he would say well written which is he says i'm losing my memory and memory is my tool and my raw material which is a great way to sum up the role of memory in writing it's both what you use to write And it's often, you know, your memories are the subject matter. So it really is the tool and the subject matter for a writer. It's everything.
1: And that's why it's so scary. It's so scary for anybody, but particularly if you're in that kind of work. He says at one point, you are asking him at different moments in his life about what he thinks of life, I guess. And he says at one point, he's going to stick to short stories because he doesn't have the ability to keep track of long plots or the arc of a story. Do you remember that conversation, or
0: no? I do. I do remember that conversation. We had it in his bedroom in Mexico City, either at bedtime or in the morning, because I know he was still kind of in bed or maybe taking a nap. Um, and he said he had heard that you know that writers with age lost the ability to hold, you know, the the the, the big novel in their head. It wasn't so much the physical strain. Or mental strain of, of the writing of a 500 page book. But I think in most cases, I think the imagination shrinks a little bit. I mean, I'm a screenwriter, and I can definitely tell, you know, when I was in my 40s, you know, I had an idea for something, an idea, mind you, not a story or a full script, I had an idea for something, you know, several times a week and now i have to it's like breaking boulders you know trying to break through to an idea that's that's deep and a little wider and and more all encompassing so he had kind of accepted that and and um cuz he was feeling it by then this was before he was ill or losing his memory this must have been when he was in his early 60s and indeed all his books after that which were you know i think two or three books that were published You know, we're all uh, under 200 pages. Coincidentally, you know, I'm a reader of Philip Roth and his last three or four books are also under 200 pages. You know, this was someone who could, you know, well into his 60s and 70s crank out 400 page novels. But even for a phenomenon like him, um, you know, the time came when the stories just shrank in size and scope. Do you have the book with you? Uh, yeah, yes.
1: i ask you to read at page 49 to 50, and then I'll have a couple questions about that.
0: Standing there at the foot of his bed, I'd like to think that his brain, despite the dementia, and perhaps aided by the morphine, is still the cauldron of creativity that it always was. Fractured, perhaps, unable to return to thoughts or to sustain storylines, but still active. His imagination was always prodigiously fertile. Six generations of the Wandia family make up 100 years of solitude, but he had enough material for two more generations. He decided not to include it for fear the novel would be too long and tiresome. He thought great discipline was one of the cornerstones of writing a novel, particularly when it came to framing the shape and limits of the tale. He disagreed with those who said it was a freer, and therefore easier form than a screenplay or a short story. It was imperative, he argued, that the novelist draft his or her own rigorous map in order to traverse what he referred to as the treacherous terrain of a novel. The journey from Aracataca in 1927 to this day in Mexico City in 2014 is about as long and extraordinary a journey as a person can have, and those dates on a tombstone could never begin to encompass it. From where I'm standing, It looks like one of the most fortunate and privileged lives ever lived by a Latin American. He'd be the first to agree.
1: It is genuinely an extraordinary life. You have this comment about the most powerful storyteller is out past his memory and may not recall his own stories. When you came to terms with that, that you've got this arc of his life, but that he can't remember it, what's your response? How are you, as his family, processing that and, and thinking about how to care for him?
0: You know, I, I, the lyrics from the musical Hamilton come to mind. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Someone is always telling someone else's story. You know, someone has to, because, you know, like my father used to say, I, uh, death is the only thing I will not be able to write about, you know, my own death. But it is, it is sobering to see the arc of a person's life. You know to see your parents diminished and obviously there's a point not infrequently you know children become the parents parent but all that is par for the course you know a lot of this subject matter is both awe-inspiring and totally daily and banal you know these are the things that people go through every day you know parents aging children becoming their parents parent and and i'm talking of course about fortunate people you know who have had long lives who can who are able to take care of their parents but you know that's the question with these issues is you they are they're stunning to to witness you know the aging the fading out of a life but you know it's perfectly natural it's still it's it's um it's stunning
1: I found it a hard balance to hold because yes it's natural it's been you know, millennia, this is how life goes. But when it's your life and your family, and you're confronted with the decline, not just someone's death, but perhaps a gradual disappearance of the person, the full person that you knew, that's when it becomes the personal experience everyone has to resolve for themselves. And what I wondered with your family, given his public profile, how you decided either to protect him or just, um, keep a smaller circle or did you have conversations about that
0: you know when my father was admitted to the hospital about a month just over a month before he died you know it was impossible to hide you know people recognized him at the hospital it was in the news that he was you know in a wing of the hospital by the time he was brought back home in an ambulance there was press and 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 readers and fans and and police trying to control the street uh, outside of the house so it it became very clear very quickly that his condition was going to be semi public and that we would have to handle it and there was no point in resisting it because you know it is what it is my father was a, you know a very famous person and the the rare writer who has both you know literary acclaim and then acclaim from just bro- a broad readership plus his involvement politically and the fact that he was such a social person you know, it, it was impossible. So there was no point in fighting it. We just had to keep the door closed physically. But you don't worry with things like, oh, well, if someone sees him, or things going to leak? And you can't go crazy. You know, there's no, there's nothing strange going on. It's an 87 year old with failing health. You know, like we said, just a moment ago, this is the story of the world. So we want to be private enough so that we can go through it in relative peace. But on the other hand, there's nothing to see here, as they say, you know, it, it's just a person who has is at the end of their life cycle. So, you know, we, we, didn't let it stress us out so much. I mean, the fact that it's a little bit in the limelight, you know, it's yes, you can't come and go, you can't leave your house without, you know, running into a throng of people. And my brother, like I mentioned in the book, was kind of snared into a couple of impromptu mini press conferences coming out of the hospital, you know, which he fell into because he is invariably, uh, unfailingly polite. Uh, But I said to him, look, you don't have to, you know, there's no obligation. You know, it's fine that people care and it's, you know, we appreciate it. But we can just shut the door on this. And and, and then, you know, when he passed away, we... uh, you know, we told a friend who put it on her newsfeed, and that was it.
1: I'm actually going to try to go back a couple of layers, because I'm thinking more about the period in which he's in decline, but he's not dying. What was striking in the last months of his life was simply the fact that this mass public and press appeared for a writer, which is almost unimaginable in the United States. Once the impact of your father and the affection and respect and and standing he has a hardship i found was trying to explain around the cognitive loss my dad was experiencing and both keep him social and connected but protect him was there talk about that how you kind of protect someone before the end because you don't want them exposed or in some way harmed hurt you know
0: yeah you know i am um... You know, we were quite frank about it. I mean, my father was not someone who had many public commitments. You know, public speaking, etc. He did do some things around his 80th birthday when he was already a little touch and go with the memory. Um, but as things got worse, you know, we just we just warned everyone: look, he may not remember you. He might be repetitive. Again, there was nothing extraordinary, and we thought there was no shame on it. In it, you know, this was an aging person you know, not only was he in his 80s, but he had gone in his 70s through a couple of, of, you know, quite strong chemotherapy treatments for, for cancer, which, you know, can also have the effect of, you know, harming your memory. But we were quite open with it. And people were just often happy to spend time with him, even if he wasn't at his height, even when he was losing his memory, he would he would be able to fall into some you know, interrogating his the person he was with. How are you? How are your people? Where are you living? Where are you working? You know, he was he was able to get away with it until he was not. I mean, we just look, there was there's no hiding it and there's no shame in it. So of course we protected him from situations where he would not be able to make it through, like public speaking or or an interview or something like that. But socially you know, everyone knew what he was going through and it was a very normal thing to go through. But, you know, it it is what it is. No shame in it.
1: Good way to put it. I want to ask if you would read page 59 as he passes and um, the, the recognition that people have and the sort of quiet dignity they bring to the moment. And that starts at word spreads.
0: Word spreads. And in an order that I can no longer recall, One person after another who works in the house makes their way to the door or to his bedside and looks on in disbelief. There is no apparent self-consciousness or awkwardness in expressing pain or grief in front of the others. The surroundings fade away, and each and every person has their own singular encounter, not just with the deceased, but also with the event itself, as if death were a communal property. Nobody can be denied their relationship to it their membership in that society, and death as something that is rather than as the lack of something is sobering to behold. That seems to be the case even for the nurses in the room. They go about their business, but it seems to me that they are now in their heads unable to avoid reflection. It's not an occurrence that must ever get old. Quite beautiful. I, I wondered I wonder that about the nurses, but... You know, you see nurses in hospitals and there's, even when they're kind, and there's sometimes an aloofness that there kind of has to be. You know, I think they have to protect themselves because suffering never gets old.
1: We're going to take a short break. And when we return, Rodrigo Garcia talks about the respect for death in Latin America. I'm Kitty Isley, and this is 24-7.
0: The University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio is proud to support the 24-7 podcast. It's Biggs Alzheimer's Institute is expanding the horizons of Alzheimer's research while supporting everyone involved in dementia care, from patients and families to healthcare professionals. Learn more about the free online programs and educational resources at uthealthdementia.org.
1: This is what I found so striking in Rodrigo Garcia's account of his father's last years and days, the almost old-world courtesy of everyone. From the nursing staff at the hospital to the press gathered outside, there was both reverence for Gabo. An authentic affection that would just burst through. Young people serenade the writer as he walks out of his home after an illness. An aide learns who she's delivering a hospital bed to and begs to offer it to the family for free.
0: I mean, it is a culture, Mexico, where death is very much discussed and part of life and part of the mythology of life. It's not sweeped under the carpet. You know, we have, of course, the Day of the Dead, but theres it's part of the discussion, as it were. It's also a culture, um, you know, where where older people are venerated. You know, in that sense, it's not unlike Japan, to, to name one country. You know, some some countries, I think there's always respect for the old, but, you know, mm-hmm. th- the U.S. Is, is fascinated with the new and with the young, and certainly the explosion of digital culture has you know made that even more apparent than ever you know the word boomer is is not necessarily a a positive one but i think you know i think there is it it is the 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 latin culture certainly the mexican culture is still a culture that there is great respect for the elderly and and where they are in life and what they've been through even if sometimes the elderly are stubborn or knuckleheaded or or sometimes downright wrong you know, there's still respect for someone who has traveled the long journey. And they may be frail now, but that doesn't mean there's no respect. And also, I think, you know, because of his fame and who he was, there was a, you know, an affection for him. And it's funny because despite that respect and that reverence for age, and in his case, for his talent and his renown, you know, the nurse, the nurses that came from the hospital would, you know, address him as mi amor, my love, chiquito hermoso, lovely little one. You know, it was, a, 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 it was both a reverence towards the older man and addressing him with no disrespect as a baby to be taken care of. My father at one point said, um, because of his loss of memory, he said, everyone treats me like a child. That's a good thing. I like it.
1: There could be two sides to that, but I think that you you portray it in a very tender way. It doesn't feel undignified. It feels comforting and kind. You render these scenes, you tell these stories with just heartbreaking, but beautiful tenderness. The way that you sketch this vigil for his final days and the farewell that follows. It's a painting. It's a tapestry. It's so full of color and so full of of grace and reverence, and I wondered if you had, as a filmmaker or writer, ever felt or seen what was comforting to you or helped you have tools to think about this very universal, very common experience.
0: I mean, the situation was very new to me in the sense that when you haven't have a parent die, you know, you're in, you're sitting on the first row, and it just brings up so many subjects for you. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that, that encouraged me or, or forced me or made it inevitable that I start taking notes. It's how, how new and powerful and peculiar and unusual and personal and public everything was and everything that happened had, you know, the potential to be a metaphor for something else. That is a whole mind, you know, state of mind that was, uh, of course, new to me.
1: There's so many shimmering parallels to me that coincidences in the last months for your father of his death to his books. And I could not imagine not having written about it. He dies on Holy Thursday. One of his main characters does as well. A bird flies into his house and dies as it does in a book. I don't know how you couldn't write about this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a subject matter presents itself to you. And, you know, like I say in the book, resistance is futile. I could not not do it. You know, I couldn't resist it. Sometimes, you know, the force of, of an image, of an idea, of of a coincidence, of a contradiction is so strong that you have to put it down. You know, again, resistance is, is, is totally futile.
1: What did you want a reader to get from it? Or were you thinking about that?
0: You know, I, I tend to think that anything well told is worth hearing. Um, you know, I've read, you know, I'll, I'll read a great book about uh, someone painting a wall, if it's well written, if it's, you know, things can be compelling in many ways. Again, you know, I had both the advantage and the disadvantage that, you know, there was built in interest in whatever I wrote, because I had access that nobody had to the final days of, of you know, the big artist, the famous artists. Um, so, again, that was a double-edged sword. You know, that guaranteed that what I wrote saw the light of day. But I also wanted it to be something that was well-written or as well-written as I could make it. And, and to make it personal but not sentimental, not maudlin. So, what do I want people to take away from it? I think, you know, the same things you want people to take away with, you know, when I write or direct a movie is, you know, to, to hopefully, you know, people will feel that that feels real like life not not in the sense that it's it's um not dramatized or that there are no metaphors or hopefully even some poetry but that it resonates with other people's lives you know that people look at something and say oh i know i know what that is like or or now i know what that is like
1: oh i think you succeeded this is a home run i mean and it's just a striking book there's a moment I wanted to ask you about about just the fatigue of mourning, and in this case, there's a more public um, expectation for uh, you and your family to be receiving guests and accepting their condolences in a in a large public setting with some dignitaries. But I think everybody can feel the same level of kind of um, weight and sort of that moment where you have to hold yourself up because that's what we do. And I wondered if you'd read that from 94 at your father, at the memorial service or at the very, what did you call it? Did you call it a memorial service?
0: I guess it was a, uh, it was a homage. It was a, you know, a national homage, I suppose. You know, his ashes were there. You know, people stood in the rain literally for hours, you know, by by the thousands to sort of, you know, walk by and. You know, they would put down mementos, flowers, some of his books, notes. Um, so it's a kind of, I, I guess it, it was a kind of homage, funeral, state funeral. You know, it's it's a, a combination of things.
1: And this is in Mexico City at a culture palace, or could you could you explain the setting and then?
0: Yeah, the setting was the Palacio de Bellas Artes, the National Palace of Fine Arts which is the, you know, the, the cultural center of the country, the equivalent of the Ministry of Culture. And it's also you, know, a theater and you know an opera, a ballet. It's one of the main um, cultural venues in the country.
1: I would start at 94.
0: We hear that the Colombian President's airplane has landed and that he is already on his way to the event. He soon makes his entrance behind his host, the president of Mexico. A pleasant surprise is that many friends of my parents came on that plane, and this new wave lifts our spirits again. My mother greets them with great glee, unabashedly delighted. ¿Qué te parece todo esto? she asks. How about this? The national anthems of both countries are played, which changes the mood. The Colombian president who is close to me in age is someone my dad knew for years, And they were friends long before he became president. He doesn't mince words. Gabo, he says, is simply the greatest Colombian who ever lived. My mom watches him with pride, like he's a nephew who has done well. His brother is also there, a journalist who is one of my mother's favorite people and who catches her up on the gossip in Bogota. She's happy, all things considered. Towards the end of the Mexican president's address, which is otherwise quite good, he refers to us as the sons and the widow. I squirm in my seat, sure that my mother will disapprove. When the heads of state leave, my brother walks over to me in deadpans, the widow. We laugh nervously. Later, my mom speaks her opinion in no uncertain terms, grumpily. She threatens to tell the first journalist who crosses her path that she plans to remarry as soon as possible. Her last words on the subjects are, no soy la viuda, yo soy yo. I am not the widow, I am me. My brother and I had promised ourselves that as long as people were standing in line outside Bellas Artes to pay their respects to our father, he and I would stay no matter how late beyond the departure of heads of state, press, friends, and family. But moments after the event is officially over, it's clear to us that our good intentions are not enough to keep us from the verge of collapse. So disappointed by our failure but hoping to forgive ourselves, we leave. That's a lot of a lot of very much, very Mercedes-like things going on there. A lot of Tell choices that she made. There was, uh, you know, the fact that she enjoys that the plane arrives full of friends, and you know she's able in the middle of the grief to get excited about interacting and about sharing the experience. You know, saying to friends, "Look at this! How about this?" Um, and then, of course, immediately, you know, voicing her. Disapproval of the way the president referred to her.
1: We're all just human. <laughs> it made a lot of sense That's to me. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> She's herself. She's not cowed by yes. this. <laughs> yeah. Who cared for your mom in her final months?
0: She, you know, she had, she was in the same house in Mexico City. You know, this happened during the pandemic. She died in August of 2020. Um, so, you know, she had two caretakers and there was a day person and a night person. And, you know, she had a secretary with had been my father's secretary. And, I mean, more than a secretary, someone who, who ran the household, you know, uh, an executive uh, assistant, I guess they would be called right now, or a house manager. Um, and, you know, my brother was in Mexico City. So he and, and I think his family, especially my niece, Emilia, were very present in her life. As much as the pandemic could allow, you know this was obviously the first year of the pandemic before uh, vaccines. So uh, she wasn't totally isolated because the people in the house stayed with her, and uh, I would FaceTime with her every day, and my brother would see her with some distance. I think she was, um, you know, fascinated wh- by what was going on. You know, the pandemic, of course, was uh, a- an unprecedented global event in her lifetime. So, you know, she was a consumer of news and was just um, fascinated by it all. And then at the end, when she got sick, you know, my brother was there with his family physically in the room. I mean, obviously, the pandemic was still raging, but there was no way not to be there. Then in a day, she took a turn to the worse. Just as I was planning a trip, you know, my brother called me and said that she had a couple of hours left. Um, so I chose not to go. You know, I was going to fly and not be with her, and um, I wouldn't get there in time. And then we were not going to be able to go to a funeral home or or have a funeral, or you know, uh, again in the middle of of you know restrictions to social gatherings. You know, I experienced what so many people had experienced. Had seen it in the news. You know, seeing their per- their, their their loved ones for the last time. You know, on your phone.
1: I wanted to end our conversation with your image of time, really, as you leave after your father's gone. On the flight. And return to Los Angeles. Yeah.
0: I board an early flight back to Los Angeles. It's my eighth flight to or from Mexico City in three weeks. As the aircraft taxis slowly toward the runway. I am suddenly overwhelmed by the clarity with which I can feel that my father's magnificent time on earth has passed. During takeoff I am filled with sorrow, but the unexpected coupling of the emptiness of loss with the powerful energy of the engines is strangely exhilarating. As the landing gear retracts and the airplane banks left, two volcanoes can be seen to the east, backlit by the rising sun, Popocatepetl hundreds of thousands of years older than the written word, and Ixtetziwittle, lying in state. As we reach 10,000 feet, a bell chimes like a gentle alarm clock. I recline my seat and look around. The woman next to me is reading 100 years of solitude on her phone. You can't make that up. (laughs) You absolutely can't. (laughs) You can't make it up. If I'd wanted to write a final... passage and that hadn't happened, I would have no idea what it could be.
1: Rodrigo Garcia, his memoir of his parents, is A Farewell to Gabo and Mercedes. If you have an experience of caring for your family, we'd love to hear it. Send us an email or a short voice recording to 247 at tpr.org. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, with Ben Henry, We have editing help from Cindy Carpian. 24-7 is a production of Texas Public Radio.